Hello, this is Marcelo Pico, uh, your HeyCast podcast co-host, doing a quick intro for episode 71. Uh, I'll just say that I am not in this episode. I was sick, uh, couldn't make the recording, um, and Matt has a special co-host filling in. Uh, and if you want to hear... Matt and the co-host talk about the new episodes of Twin Peaks, uh, currently on Showtime. Then skip to the last 18 minutes of the episode. Or just listen to the whole episode, this one, and and enjoy it. And then hear about the new Twin Peaks. So yeah, I just wanted to say that up front. Uh, good episode with Matt and a special co-host. And then Twin Peaks talk at the very end, so... Enjoy. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Hey, What You Watching, the weekly podcast where Marcelo Pico and I discuss the films we've been watching. This is episode 71, Podcast Covenant, and I'm your host, Matt Curione, and with me as not usual is Rob Trench. How are you, Rob? I'm doing great, man. How's it going? <laughs> Pretty good. Uh, Marcelo is not well, so he nope. will be taking the night off, and you have swooped in like the guardian angel that you are to take his place. Oh, it's really nothing, honestly. I just, uh, I hope he's feeling better for you guys to resume your normal schedule next week, but I don't know. If he's not well enough to go on the show tonight, maybe that's for the best. Well, it'll be fine. Everything will be great. I mean, I've done this hosting the show myself one time before. I think I can do it again. Yep. Second time's the charm. Isn't it, though? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, usually Marceau and I bullshit and small talk here. Uh, so how the heck are you? How you been? I'm all right. Great talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. Everything's fine. Fine, just fine. Uh, anyway, we got we had you on about, I don't know, ten episodes ago, I think? Yeah, I think when... The last time I was on the show was, I think, late February, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, I think... Late February, early March, because I know Logan had just come out. Yeah, and I was just, like, you know, beaming from seeing the film early and just, like, you know, rubbing it in your faces. I was just going to say, rubbing it in our faces, you know, showing off. Yep. <laughs> but, hey, that's fine. Uh, so this time, we're not going to get to know you. Nope. Even though we are. Yeah. Uh, so you are from, uh, well, you live in Toronto, yeah? Yep, the great white north. All right, so we're going to do a little bit of Get to Know You. It's an impromptu one. Uh, what's the best hangout spot in Toronto that you like to frequent? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, well, I'm sort of in my mid-20s. I'm kind of a proto-hipster, so, you know, a lot of the streets in Toronto, they're just like, you know, full of bars and, you know, sort of the happening places, I guess. I don't know. Like, in terms of locale, I guess. I don't want to get too geographic because it's going to be kind of alienating. I know that this podcast doesn't have a, you know, very high Canadian listener base, so... We have one. We have one. 
We have one. Okay, so uh, might be making like a you know connection on that level. Uh, you saw Scott Pilgrim, right? Of course, I did. It's pretty much that. You know, there's the okay, like the Leeds Palace is a great concert venue and uh, Pizza Pizza, sure, uh, sure, Casa Loma. You know, all that stuff is like walking distance for me, so it's pretty great. Awesome. I've always wanted to go. It's uh, on the bucket list for a fun town to check out. Yeah, it's kind of like New York, but like, you know, scrawny. Scrawny. <laughs> scrawny Big Apple. Yep. All right. Um, that's all I wanted to know about Toronto. <laughs> yeah, I should have, like, you can, like, read a book or Wikipedia. It, you know. Or watch Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, that too. Yeah, you can always just watch Scott Pilgrim and just get an idea. Or watch any movie and see where they try to, you know, disguise Toronto as New York. That's my favorite thing, actually, watching, like, any movie that's shot here and... They try to use stuff to, you know, mask it and whatnot. It's always fun, especially like now that we have so many TV shows which have been shot here, like *Handmaid's oh, yeah. Tale* and. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, *Covert Affairs* was also shot here, and huh. uh, *American Gods* as well. Oh wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a show I need to watch. There's, but there's other pressing shows that I need to watch that are on the air right now. But we'll talk about that at the end of the show. Yes, yes, we will. But right now, we're going to take a stroll down to Matt's Riddle Corner, where I give cryptic clues about what films we'll be discussing. We're going to start off with Ridley Scott giving everyone a middle finger for two hours. And then we're going to take a trip into the 80s with uh, Roger Moore's uh, couple of his James Bond movies. Uh, And then we're going to go to the desert in black and white, and it's not Fury Road. And then we're going to go to the desert in glorious color, and it's not Logan. And then we're going to have a motorcycle that shoots rockets? I think that's what you said? Yep. Okay, cool. And then the foster parents are dead. And then we're going to be a getaway driver, right? That's a thing. And then we're going to talk about a guy with really cool hair for the last part of the show. As usual, I have disdain for the audience, and I try to hide what we're talking about. But if you look down at your podcast player or phone, I don't even know if they make podcast players anymore, you'll see what we're going to be talking about. So... Last week, a movie came out about uh, little little babies that hang out in your chest and they pop out. Uh, we both saw Alien Covenant. Uh, you can start, Rob. Okay. So, yeah, I, uh, I feel like this it seems like old news to me because I saw the movie like a week before its general release at a promo you, screening. Yeah, you saw it like three years ago. Yeah, it feels like that <laughs> much time has passed in like Hollywood terms. But, uh, yeah, Alien Covenant... Ridley Scott mounting another return to the franchise, which kickstarted his career. This movie is a bit interesting because it's a, like a sequel to Prometheus, but it's also trying to be like a prequel to Alien, 1979. So yeah. I've seen the word interquel used a lot to kind of describe just what this movie is. Is that a word? It is now. Wow. That's that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> Damn. I gotta, gotta add that to the dictionary. But yeah, go on. <laughs> So yeah, Alien Covenant, it's interesting. It takes ten takes takes place ten years after Prometheus. We have a new crew on a you know fantastic voyage. This time they're a bunch of colonists looking for a faraway planet. And as you can assume with these kinds of movies, something goes wrong, they end up in the wrong place, and a lot of them just get straight up murdered by Did, you know the denizens of this foreign planet. Damn right they do. <laughs> but yeah, um you are not the biggest fan. Well, let's be honest. Last week, I was a little harsh on the movie. I think it's mostly because the day after I saw it, I almost forgot everything I saw about the movie, which really happens. And that's a good indicator that I did not like it. I won't say this is a terrible movie, 
it's in my opinion just very disappointing from what I expected it to you know hit and on the marks. Yeah, I went in with a very high optimistic you know perspective because I didn't love Prometheus as much as I wanted it to, but mm-hmm. I figured let's just give him another shot. Honestly, this is essentially like a soft reboot of the series, and he's taking in all these new ideas he wants to you know put into this play- practice. And I'll be honest, for the first 40 minutes, it works pretty well. It's just, it moves into a whole kind of dramatic shift in the later half of the film. I think you can definitely, like, attest to that. Almost definitely. And it's that element which kind of half the audiences love, the other half are just not so sure about. Because it's such a huge tonal swing in terms of things. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that uh, they liked it when it wasn't a sequel to Prometheus. And to those people, I just say, what? That's, this, this is how the movie... The movie was basically advertised the whole time. In, in any interview you, you heard, you heard Scott going, this is a continuation of David's story. And right. I guess people didn't catch on to that because Alien was in the title. Well, that's the confusing thing. Originally, it was like Prometheus 2. Then it was like Alien Paradise Lost. And yes. Was, you know... Alien Covenant, so it's yeah. gone through a lot. It's gone through a huge like metamorphosis in terms of what exactly this whole sort of you know return to that universe is. Yeah, I mean, from on a technical level, I really do love this thing. I mean, oh yeah, Scott Scott has that eye for detail that very few other blockbuster directors have. I mean, you look at other blockbuster directors and they're just like, okay, action, 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 let's do this. This guy takes time for like little character moments even though they might not build in too much he gives them something to do uh i love the cinematography in this uh i love that he's found a new new best friend in darius wolski who has shot the last few of his movies uh he did uh prometheus uh the counselor i i just love the work he's doing here he's able to it's not your typical claustrophobic alien movie. He's able to show off, just like in Prometheus, like these lush vistas of uh, just like woods and uh, a couple deserts here and there. And it just, it looks really pretty. Um, I love that about this thing. And I love the cast. I mean, yeah, most of them are red shirts mm-hmm. and they're just there to get murdered. But that's what that's what these movies are about. They're They're about... How can we murder people with monsters in interesting ways? Uh, I love Catherine Waterston in this. I think she is great. Uh, I wasn't the biggest fan of her in Inherent Vice a few years ago, but I really liked her, yeah, sue me, in Fantastic Beasts. (laughs) I thought she was like the high point of that movie that I didn't really enjoy. Uh, But she's really, really great here, Uh, bad hair aside. And yeah, that hair, it's... uh, her her dad would be would be proud because he Ridley Scott basically gave her a Sam Waterston wig from Law and Order from the first few seasons and was like yeah I liked your dad uh, I want him <laughs> but I mean yeah it was it, her hair is silly but I think she's really good in this and for me I mean she was a good, nice surprise but the biggest surprise was Danny McBride uh, actually able to play it straight uh, for I guess ninety percent of his performance. Uh, he, who knew that Danny McBride could do a serious horror action movie as well as he did? I mean, I yeah, I really liked him in this one, yeah. and and he actually and like I said before, Scott gives actors little character moments, and like 
Danny McBride halfway through this movie goes through like a breakdown where you just feel for this guy. Mm-hmm. You're like you're like he has no idea what's going on, and then the other shoe drops, and he just like bursts into tears, and it works. Uh, because fun fact, Danny McBride's actually a pretty good actor. Totally. Uh, he's yeah. he's not just the funny guy. Yeah, there was uh, like a whole side of his career before he got in with like the whole uh, Seth Rogen gang. Even yeah. his earlier films, like with David Gordon Green, like all the real girls and other sort of stuff like that. It's okay. nice that he's kind of taking a bit of a return to you know less sort of jokey bro dick joke kind of stuff. I, yeah, mean, I mean, it's it's a nice bit of stunt casting. It actually really works. I mean, when it, worked, it, was, yeah. when it, when it was announced you'd be in the movie, a lot of people were just kind of, uh, you know, this could go either way. It's yeah. kind of strange. And I'll, let's be real, he gets, uh, you know, a better sort of role in the movie than his buddy James Franco, who basically just <laughs> roasted like a marshmallow in the first opening moment. Yeah, it's hilarious. I, I cracked up really hard when that happened. I was like, oh, wait, that's, oh, God, he's dead. That's fun. Spoilers, ladies and gentlemen, for the first two minutes of Alien Covenant. But, uh, yeah, he dies. <laughs> And it's glorious. <laughs> it really is. Uh, but hey, he, he couldn't film very long. He was making uh, The Disaster Artist. So, you know, he had other things to do. But yeah, no, Danny McBride is great in this. And I noticed actually recently I started watching Vice Principals. Yeah. And he, he actually has a lot of, like, dramatic parts in that, too. Like, when he's dealing with his family and such. Uh, you could see like him doing like serious acting there, but also mixed it mixed in with you know cursing off children right. and such, which you know he's good at. So, yeah. you know, I mean, he's good in this, but hey, don't quit your day job, right? And uh, make that Halloween movie just the way I want it, please. Oh yeah, that's gonna be great. That's gonna be lots of fun. But yeah, uh, overall, I really did like this movie, and I don't know, I maybe it's because I'm so on board with whatever Ridley Scott does. Uh, I mean, I that's that's a flaw of mine, I suppose, where, you know, he's the hill I'm going to die on. Yeah. But Everybody has, like, their favorite sort of director who, you know, just anything they make, they suddenly are attracted to. And it's just interesting to see how in which they maneuver through that. And yeah, I mean, the last I couple don't... of years, he's taken so many different kind of projects under, you know, his wing. Yeah. From, like, just the really esoteric you know the counselor or just Oof, uh yeah. what in the heck is this exodus gods and kings you know oh that that was a one for you one for me yeah type deal most definitely yes uh but yeah i mean i haven't liked everything i've seen from him uh, uh but i'm there's always parts of his movies that i'm able to get enjoyment out of right and and that's probably why i count him as my favorite filmmaker because yeah. he just he's got that detail-oriented eye and he just he doesn't care what anyone thinks. He's just going to do whatever the hell he wants to do with his movies. And, yeah. and, uh, and I'm, think, I'm totally fine like a, with that. Yeah, I think that's a big part of why a lot of people didn't really like Alien Covenant. And you say it's like, you know, enjoying in so many ways. But let's get to the heart. This movie is really brutal. It and is It goes like neo-Gothic territories like later yeah. on and stuff. And I it feel is, like maybe people just aren't prepared for that. They're not prepared for that. They, I don't think people were prepared for like such a bleak gruesome and like hateful movie right uh to kick off uh the summer movie season uh this kind of reminds me of what people's reaction to alien 3 would have been when that first came out as like a big summer blockbuster and then they get you know here's the questions of life oh god i don't feel nice right now like as they're leaving the theater yeah, because this whole thing is essentially he's trying to answer the question of where do these xenomorphs come from, and it's and also that- and also where we come from. Which I mean, if you look at Ridley Scott himself, he's eighty years old. Uh, 
maybe he's having these questions himself and he just wants to put it into a movie to maybe better process that. Right. And in order to get to this whole aspect of creation, he's basically gone and taken like a postmodern take on like uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein myth. Yes. Yes. And uh, I can't believe we've gone this far without discussing Fassbender. Yeah, well, it's just getting to that because he's the whole yeah. root of this thing. And like this yes. is like Michael Fassbender's movie. He does double duty as both of the androids here. Walter and David, yeah. Walter and David. And as I think you've remarked before, this is essentially like, you know, David's sort of like uh, story arc that's being played from uh, Prometheus and this film and the next film he's supposed to yeah. be making, Alien Awakening, I think is what it's called. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so just kind of charting his sort of trajectory, I guess, as he becomes like this very self-aware, um, synthetic man. Uh, <laughs> that's not a good way of yeah. saying it. Yeah, um, eh, he's a synthetic. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. at, some, at some points it seems like he, uh, Scott's gone and taken some cues from uh, Roy Batty from Blade Runner. I feel like there's oh, like, at least one or two moments yeah. where that's like, a direct invocation. Yeah, uh, da- uh, Fassbender goes full on uh, Blade Runner replicant in this. It's in a few scenes. It's pretty, pretty next level. Like yeah. just the whole I want to create, and you know, asking his creator different questions. It's it's pretty pretty nuts that uh, that he's culling from these different stories that he's worked on and just putting them into this series. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I'm a big fan. You, not so much. <laughs> no, maybe like I'll return to it uh, in a couple of years. Maybe he'll make a new cut of the film. Because that was the other thing that just really bugged me. Is that it seemed like there's a lot of scenes that are left on the cutting room floor that would have fleshed out the characters more and made more sense of everything, I guess. Uh, maybe too many you know, hands like in the proverbial editing room. Too many cooks. Too many cooks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good movie. Uh, I will say I did like the... Uh, the motion capture that was on the actual Xenomorph. Yep. Uh, I, uh, Javier Bote, that's the guy who did the uh, the motion capture. Uh, listeners probably know him as the tall, crooked man from uh, The Conjuring 2, and he also did the motion capture for Mama. Uh, this guy is one of those talents where you're going to see him pop up doing motion capture and even different characters and creatures like here and there over the next few years. He's going to have a huge career ahead of him. Uh he's kind he's kind of like uh he's kind of like a horror only uh Andy Serkis mixed with like a Doug Jones type. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and uh if listeners want to check out the creepiest thing ever, look up his test footage from Mama. Uh the human body should not be able to do that. And it is completely terrifying. Uh don't watch it before you go to bed. Uh, because you won't. Mm. But yeah, moving on. Uh, earlier this week, uh, well, not this week, because this episode didn't... Yes, when we're recording this, uh, earlier this week, uh, Roger Moore uh, passed away. And, uh, you know, at uh, over at Talk Film Society, we put together a little tribute uh, where we discussed our favorite uh, movies of his. Uh, spoiler, there was a lot of James Bond included. Uh, but I did make room for Spice World, because it's Spice World, and it's wonderfully ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, you and I the other day both watched a uh, a Roger Moore movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched. Uh, I'll start off. I watched uh, 1981's For Your Eyes Only, uh, which I absolutely love. This movie 
It's not one that I saw all that much when I was a kid because uh, usually they would, uh, for the James Bond marathons, they would just show, like, uh, the fun James Bond movies. And this movie, sure, it has some fun moments. He fights a hockey team, and that's pretty cool. Uh, But overall, this movie is uh, pretty dour. He... It's the most brutal that Roger Moore ever was uh, as the character. Uh, he actually, there's a scene where, I wrote about this in the article, where a henchman is escaping in a car, and he kind of, like, crashes it, and he's, like, precariously hanging over the edge of a cliff, and Roger Moore just uh, kicks him over the edge. And it's probably the most Daniel Craig that Roger Moore ever got as the character. And the movie also has a lot of uh, great uh, great characters in it. Uh, the bad guy is played by... Good lord, I forget his name. But he... He he was the guy in Raiders in uh, Last Crusade who chose poorly with the... Uh, with the chalice. The, the Holy Grail. That's what it's called. Yes. You know what I'm talking about at all? Sure. <laughs> okay, sure. Anyway, yeah, he was the bad guy in Last Crusade. Uh, he's the bad guy in this. Uh, it has... Um, the guy from Fiddler on the Roof as his like Greek informant, and he is a lot of fun uh, to hang out and uh, hang out with for James Bond. And yeah, I just really love this movie. I think it's one of his best uh, in the role, along with uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, uh, which we also did a little write-up on. Uh, but you watched one of uh, the worst James Bond movies. So I had a bit of a sad confession, and that's that I've actually never seen a Roger Moore James Bond film before, and I got a lot of... Um, hate on Twitter because of that. But I, you know, said that I grew up in a very strict Sean Connery only household, which is true. <laughs> so this I felt was my opportunity to finally get into that world. And I decided I would start at the end. Because the Roger Moore James Bond films, from what I've been able to gather, started off pretty well, got a bit shaky, you know, had their highs and lows. I kind of yeah. feel like the thing that people say that every other James Bond movie is fantastic and the ones that are not are kind of subpar to middling to crap. So I can see that, yeah. So the one I watched was A View to a Kill, which was the last, oh one, boy. <laughs> last one that Roger Moore made at the age of 57, I believe. Oof, 1985. Yeah. And this movie, it's uh, it's not. I don't think it's you know the worst James Bond movie. I feel like people say it's no Moonraker on that regard, but this is pretty fun. It's uh, it's literally a James Bond movie made in the exact midpoint of the 1980s, mm-hmm. and it's just oozing with this weird campy style. All the actors are essentially phoning it in. The and uh, uh, it's just. Very unintentionally funny in so many ways, which is, I think, why I liked it so much. I mean, this movie opens with James Bond uh, having an impromptu snowboarding escape. And of course he did. Like he, in, he, invented, and, uh, he invented snowboarding. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a really wacky way to start it off. And then you get that insane Duran Duran theme song. Oh, my God, it's so good. It's so good. It was like a chart-topping hit back in the day, too. It's just like the one thing from the movie that I think most people remember yeah, uh, it's, besides, it's the high point of the movie. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's just kind of sad that like the movie just wasn't as good as it should have been because you've got Christopher Walken as the blimp. villain in a blimp. This movie has an amazing <laughs> blimp fight. Oh my god! Yeah, oh my god, it's amazing. And he has that awesome blimp. Uh, it's like it's it's like that the the ejector seat chair. Yeah, with it has like a slide. Oh my god! Best one of the best uh, Bond villain layers. Totally. Yeah, and I don't know what to think. It's just. 
honestly, I think after I saw the movie, I was like, I wish like the more recent Daniel Craig movies were like this because yeah, this movie it's just. It's not good, but, like, it's fun, you know? It's and, a lot of fun, yes. And I know, like, the whole recent James Bond thing has just been kind of more cold and sterile and more thriller-based, but I kind of feel like they need to light it up a little bit because I was not a fan of Spectre at all. And, the, like, the whole thing, watching that movie, I was just thinking, this movie kind of just needs a, like, a break from just the whole overtly serious tone and kind of harking needs, back to the way that you know movies like this were and it needs a, a specter needed a blimp fight basically. exactly yeah i mean just yeah. sort of uh you know break from reality you know suspension of disbelief because i mean all these movies are essentially like uh you know Fantasies. guy gets into crazy situations has to fight his way out through spectacularly driven sequences yeah. and this movie has so many great action sequences oh my god uh it's, i really like the uh the fire engine chase yeah when he's on the ladder, that was really cool. Yeah, uh, I like the um, uh, Jesus, uh, the Eiffel Tower sequence. Yep, that was really cool. Yeah, this movie has a lot of fun, fun shit going on. Yeah, and it has Grace Jones doing her Grace Jones thing, which was, is awesome. I wasn't sure what she was doing the whole movie, but she was like very exceptional <laughs> to watch. And it's just kind of funny going back through the movies like marketing, and it's just like all the posters are like them side to side and it's like has James Bond met his match and it's like this muscular yeah. like black woman it's like wait what I don't understand and they, and they hated each other yeah. on set they did not get along her and Roger Moore I can so only imagine like, he was like what are you doing <laughs> and she's like oh, she, she, she would just always respond I'm doing my own thing <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> yeah Man. Yeah, so he was basically done at this time. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, uh, I, this is one of my favorites when I was growing up. And then, you know, I realized that it's not that great of a movie. But, hey, it's still one of my favorite James Bond movies just for, like, that nostalgia value. Right. And I do love um, Patrick McNee in this uh, as uh, Sir, Sir Godfrey, his, right. his, his, like, assistant when they're at the horse ranch. Uh, yeah, he's lots of fun. He was, uh, he was from the original Avengers TV mm-hmm. show. Which is uh, super cool that they finally mixed up uh, James Bond and John Steed. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, they, we had to have like more espionage crossovers like that, you know. Yes, that'd be lots of fun. But yeah, um, well, I'm glad you enjoyed your first Roger Moore James Bond movie. Yep, and there's a whole lot more to come. So yes, didn't you say you were going to watch him in reverse? Yep. Yes. That's that's I've I've done that once before and it's a uh, it's a wild ride, my friend. Well, the next one would be Octopussy, so yeah. Which is which is a legit good <laughs> spy movie minus its silly title, <laughs> and it's got a really good theme song. Uh, oh, but just wait till you meet J W. Peppa. Oh, I can't wait for you to meet him. He's uh, he's a fun caricature that you that you will have so much fun just shaking your head at that that he comes back for two movies. I'm, I'm aware of him, but, like, I just haven't seen him in action yet, so... Ah, uh, J.W. Peppa. Anyway, anyway, yesterday, um, the new Blu-ray for Logan came out, and, hey, you you talked about this movie last time you were on, but you didn't talk about the black and white version. Nope. Uh, so, yeah, we just... Uh, Carl and I just got decided to watch the... I guess it's uh, Logan Noir, even though it's not really noir, but, hey, that's fine. That's that's fun marketing for you, but I'm not in marketing, so I can't speak on that. Anyway, yeah, Logan is still one of my favorite movies of the year, and I love this black and white version. Uh, I like it a lot more than the black and chrome Mad Max Fury Road, I'll say that, because I feel that 
that movie is all about the uh, the color palette and how crazy it gets with its use of color that the black and white version kind of didn't work for me. Right. But in Logan, it works so well. I don't think I'll be able to go back to the color version of Logan. This... Uh, this transfer they did, I don't know what they did with it, but it just looks so crisp and clear in black and white. Uh, it's it's a gorgeous film, and it's still one of the best comic book movies and one of the best films of the year. Yeah. I know you enjoyed this one. Yeah, I love this movie. I didn't think I was going to. I thought it'd just be like another kind of gritty take on the superhero uh, from like an R-rated perspective. But Same like, here. I just walked in, walked out of the movie thinking, holy shit, this is like like a true masterpiece of the subgenre and i you know had no hesitation to like you know actually buying it on blu-ray which i never ever do for like brand new movies at this point <laughs> um but i think it's interesting you say you prefer the black and white version to this over the black and white version for fury road because yeah i feel like logan actually takes a lot of influence from fury road stylistically it also borrows from like other sort of post-apocalyptic narratives as well as harking back to uh, old westerns, which is why I think maybe the black and white version does work. I know the film features yeah. like an implicit reference to Shane, which is in color, so obviously that doesn't count. But I feel like yeah. that whole sort of like western motif of the movie becomes such more heightened when you watch it in this other way, which is you know taking all the uh, vibrant sort of color and all those like, yeah. know, sunset hues out of it. And when you watch it as black and white, it does play more like a western. Uh, which is crazy to me that simply just dropping the color and color timing it a certain way can just change it. Change the way you like perceive a film. And I re- that's what I really liked about what Mangold did with this, uh, this certain cut of the movie. Yeah. Did you feel like there was like a heightened like emotional impact of the movie? Because that's the, oh one, my, thing that, yes. that's the one thing that really got me about Logan. It's that literally from the first scene onward, I was like wincing in my seat at like the violence and just like the way they were able to build this story. And I feel like it was half just the violence itself is so gory, but it's also just seeing this character that has been on movie screens for the last 17 years and seeing him in a way we haven't seen before. And it's like, you know, really hard to take at times. I think the black and white, uh, it works well in some fight scenes, not in all of them. I, but I do feel it works especially well in any scene that has Patrick Stewart in it. Uh, there's the the one scene, the first time you meet uh, Charles Xavier in this, he's basically screaming to himself. He's like repeating a Taco Bell commercial. And then he goes into like a uh, going back and forth with Logan. And the way the camera focuses on him in the black and white really sells the performance even more than it did before. Yeah. A question I'd like to ask you, though. Uh, I, I can still remember when colorization was a new thing in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And there was this huge uproar about it. But now we're doing this decolorization thing, and the uproar isn't there. What's your take on that? See, that's interesting to me because I remember the whole, like, fervor started two years ago 
when George Miller said that he wished he had done Fury Road in black and white because that was in his you know directorial stance like the proper way to see the movie, which yeah you know resulted in this whole sort of like you know fan demand to actually have that version released so people yeah. could see it, and then they did the whole thing this year where they actually did put the movie out on home media. They gave special screenings to it. And, uh, you know, James Mangold followed suit with Logan, so he actually bundled the two versions together and he had special screenings as well because it's becoming, like, a new trend for these, like, action blockbusters to have, like, a no special dedicated version. And I know it's something that happened 10 years ago when Frank Darabont did The Mist. And I think that was, like, one... That was the first time I ever saw a version of the movie like that. And it was, like, really, really, you know, intense because that's a film where that, you know, colorization change actually makes a big deal. I need to see that movie. <laughs> like, you haven't seen it at all? No. Okay. Never. Okay, you know the ending, though, right? Nope. Okay, well, I won't say I know anything. nothing about that movie. I just know that there's monsters outside of a shopping, uh, like a grocery store. You, you're going to be in for something. Just make sure okay. you watch it before the new TV show on Spike starts or whatever, because that's going to... That's. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, there's a... And I know that I've met uh, the woman that's in it. Yeah. Um, Marsha Gay Harden? Yep. Yeah, I met her once. Cool. She's a delight. Oh, wow. <laughs> She was wonderful. Yeah. But anyway, I kind of feel like this whole like uh, black and white trend, it'll be interesting to see where it goes because I think that Fury Road and Logan are two very distinct films that can be sort of grouped together based on their aesthetic. But yeah. I wonder if it remains to be seen if other directors who are maybe not in that kind of like, you know, action contingent try to have, you know, the same wonders work for their filmmaking and you know, it's only a matter of time, I think, before more and more directors, you know, take on this approach. I just hope that when they do, it's actually with intent. It's not just a hawk another version of the movie, and they actually. It's not like, just a gimmick. Not a gimmick, exactly, because you know, then it just gets rendered but pointless. And yeah. you know, both of these films, they actually spend a lot of time having their films regraded, and yeah, so that's a lot of work. It's not just like flipping a switch, like sending, changing the settings on your television. No, and a lot of people. There's feel a lot like of work that goes is. into this. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I got, I got, I talked to someone the other day. They're like, "Can't you just change your TV settings?" And I'm like, "No, you can't. You can have fun doing that, but no, no, it's not the same thing." But yeah, hey, that's Logan. It's pretty awesome. Uh, listeners should definitely pick up the uh, the Blu-ray because then you get a basically get an extra copy of the movie, and it's in black and white. It's super cool. Yep. And I can't wait for you to watch that. Oh yeah, probably with this weekend or something. Nice. Okay. I uh, I so yeah. The day I got Logan, I watched another movie that's very connected. Uh, I watched Unforgiven. Clint Eastwood's nineteen ninety two. Uh, 1992, uh, I guess it's an anti-Western, but it's also a Western. Uh, this is my favorite Western. I, it's also possibly my favorite film directed by Clint Eastwood. This I picked up the new 4K uh, restoration on the, on, the blue, on the 4K Blue, and I've never seen this movie look so good. I mean, this is what studios should be doing with their catalog titles. They should be just giving them this loving care uh, that a movie like this, or basically any movie, deserves. Uh, I The vistas in this are... You, you could just frame them. They're just so pretty, and like the picture quality is like next level. Uh, I really love... Uh, this was a new restoration that was supervised by Clint Eastwood and uh, his cinematographer. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they had a full hands-on uh, experience redoing this movie and it doesn't look like it used to look but it 
it almost looks better. Uh, it's got a real filmic quality to it. It doesn't have that like digital sheen that, say, like the new remaster of Heat has, uh, which I love for Heat because you know it's Michael Mann and he's Mister Digital. Uh, but I do love that uh, Eastwood was able to keep that aesthetic for this new uh, new restoration. And uh, the 4K restoration is not a, the new look of the film is not available on regular Blu-ray separately. Uh, to get that on regular Blu-ray, you actually do have to buy the 4K disc. Uh, it's included with uh, the new uh, new release. Uh, but yeah, this uh, it's. My favorite Western. I love this movie more than most things. Uh, I, the the performance in the, is, performances in this, I, I love uh, Gene Hackman as Little Bill, as the local sheriff, uh, who, let's face it, gets what's coming to him. Uh, I mean, Clint Eastwood says, he's like, you did, basically says, you did deserve it. You know, you decorated your bar with my best friend. And yeah, he got what was coming to him. Uh, Richard Harris gives an all-timer extended cameo as English Bob. Uh, He said, uh, one of my favorite lines of his in this is, uh, maybe America should just uh, uh, appoint a king or a queen uh, because you you don't think twice about shooting a president, but you quiver at the thought of shooting a king or a queen. Uh, I love English Bob in this. Uh, He's a lot of fun. And I love Morgan Freeman and Clint Eastwood. They are just so good. I think this might be Clint Eastwood's best performance in front of the camera. I mean, he just, he brings the, he's, he's been playing this character his entire career at this point, the, the cowboy. But this time he plays it with, with such like a devastating, like devastating feel to it that you, you know that he murdered, you know, as they say in the movie, women and children and families but you almost feel bad for him because it did not. He, he's not living a good life. I mean, his wife passed away. Uh, he's living on this crappy little pig farm with two two kids. Uh, yeah, no, he's he's great in this movie, and he sells it, and it and it works uh, for the entire film. Uh, this movie won a bunch of Oscars. It won four Oscars. It won uh, best picture, director, um, editing. And uh, supporting actor for Gene Hackman, he got another statue. Uh, well deserved. Um, I've been rambling for a while about Unforgiven. Uh, have you seen this? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Thank God, because I didn't want to. You just say, have have you go? No, I've never seen it. Well, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's uh, it's another great film about the death of the Western in Almost the same sense as uh, Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, and you have the interesting aspect of Clint Eastwood closing the chapter on the uh, iconic sort of uh, anti-hero cowboy who he played in yeah. all of Sergio Leone's films and all the other films he made in the 70s and 80s. And it is sort of like looking back on the sort of um, moralistic and ethical sort of uh, lines he crossed. And as you said, uh, you know, just committing like a life of crime and murder. And it's a film where like death is essentially like the foregrounding aspect of it. It's a very bleak type of film um and it subverts all these stereotypes we have with the western genre itself uh you know it's uh it kind of takes on the way in which the new hollywood westerns were sort of constructed and you know felt in but it adds this whole sort of like uh grimacing element as well which yeah you know is just so uh 
Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen this movie in like four years. Oh wow, I okay. From like memory, but I just remember it's the performances in it are just like the highlight of it for sure. Oh man, I mean, even like I, holy crap, Morgan Freeman is great in this movie, uh, and I love that. Uh, I think this was actually the first time they collaborated. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, and then you know they've had this great career going forward where they you know they work together all the time. It's great. Uh, yeah, I love this. I love the screenplay. Everything about Unforgiven is just great for me. I can't get enough of this thing. I'm probably going to watch it again this weekend. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Something that is not Unforgiven. <laughs> Tell me about Megaforce, please. Okay. <laughs> so Megaforce is an oddity within the canon of really, really bad 80s movies. Okay. Um. So it's sort of... I can't really. This is one of those movies where it's like I can't really explain the plot to you. You just you need to to, see it to believe it it for yourself. Because this movie, it has a plot. It's just not really interesting. This is sort of like a movie about a squad of like you know super military officers where nobody actually has like a rank except for the leader who is played by Barry Bostwick from yes, please. Rocky Horror Picture Show fame and he yep. has a huge beard and he wears a bandana and the first scene you see him in he's like riding this like uh, motorcycle squad and like they're like painted gold and they shoot like missiles out of them and I'm, look- I'm looking at the poster right now and it's glorious it is so 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 80s um, there has never been a superhero like Ace Hunter and then there's the sign that says deeds, not words. Yeah, yeah. This I is need um, it. this is basically like an action figure movie. That's kind of the best way I can describe it because Jesus. you're sort of drawn in it's all style, no substance, for sure. Yeah. And but the style isn't even like that good. It's just like I was really, really like um a bit more on the side of liking the movie than I more should have because it's awful in so many ways but yeah. it's so charming at the same time you kind of can't help but like be entranced by it. Yeah, I need need to see this. I, I if, you, if you're like a fan of like 80s canon films, movies, this is like straight up that alley. Oh crap, I just looked it up. It's on Amazon Prime Video. Yep. For free. So oh, yeah. I, you know, I think I know that. it all. I might watch it tonight. This, this this might be a lot of fun. It's a good sort of midnight movie. It kind of has a cult following, but not not a very good one. But it's one where I kind of hope that people kind of come back to it, um, you know, in the ensuing years because it's a little overlooked. I mean, there's been a couple yeah. of like oddball like references to it in popular culture, but like only the kind of thing that like '80s kids who grew up that would really <laughs> only '80 kids would remember. Yeah, but I do, I do love uh, I love the director. Yeah, uh, Hal, Needham. Hal Needham. He did, you know, the Smoking the Bandits and the Cannibal Run, but he's known for stunts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, totally. He did, like, he did, uh, you know, the French Connection and stuff like that. Uh, he even did Blazing Saddles, which is pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, he's uh, one of the best, like, stunt coordinators around. Well, he was, but, you know, back then. But, yeah, no, uh, I'm going to check this out tonight. Nice. That's what I'm going to do. Okay. Well, Speaking- don't, don't be so, uh, if you don't like it, just, you know... I tried my best. Hey, I mean, one of my favorite movies is Death Race 2000, so I think uh, I think I'll do fine. Okay, I think I think I'll do fine. All right. Speaking of crazy action movies, I watched another one uh, the the other day. I basically did a triple feature of Unforgiven, Logan, and Terminator 2: Judgment Day. There was a bit of a theme going there that that day. Uh, yeah, this movie is it's fucking awesome. Uh, I don't know if people know this, but James Cameron's pretty good at making sequels. 
Yep. Uh, it's it's kind of one of the things he's best at. Uh, uh, one one of the things he's not best at is you know working past the first draft. But hey, that's fine. He's he can <laughs> he can still make money, and his movies are entertaining as all get out. Uh, yeah, I love Terminator Two. Uh, it's one of those movies that you know I saw when I was a little kid, uh, probably way too young. And yeah, it's a movie that we wore out the VHS when I was a child. We had this taped off of pay per view uh, because that's what it was called back then. It wasn't called on demand; it was called pay per view. And yeah, no, I love this movie so much. Uh, as I've grown older, I've enjoyed. I like the original more because it's more of like. It's basically a slasher movie. It's Michael Myers with a shotgun, mm-hmm. uh, the original. But this movie is one of the best action epics ever made. And I don't know what kind of deal with the devil that James Cameron signed, but those special effects hold the hell up. Uh, they are pretty seamless, even to this day. And I cannot wait to see this in 3D over the oh, yeah. summer. That's coming out uh, soon, right? That is coming out over the summer. And, I mean... James Cameron, I don't know if people know this, he's pretty good with 3D. Oh, yeah. uh, the 3D, I mean, Avatar is the given, but the 3D uh, conversion he did for Titanic a few years ago was breathtaking. Uh, it was some of the best 3D I have ever seen. And if Terminator 2 looks half as good as that, everyone's in for a treat, because that's going to be one of the highlights of everyone's summer. Yeah. Uh, You've seen this movie, yes? Uh-huh. Okay, uh, good. <laughs> I saw this like when I was like ten years old, I think, and I just remember Same. Being really blown away. I think what works so well about Terminator Two is that it's a movie where it's always moving forward. It's kind of like uh, yeah, it's, it's like constant. a road movie in yeah. that sense, but like it's constant, and that's why it's so kind of thrilling to watch. It's like it's never really in the same place for too long. It's never really stagnant. So the ante kind of keeps just getting progressively more upgraded as it you know continues. Yeah. And the stunts in this are great. Everything about this is great. And I love the fact that it's a sequel where you don't need to see the original in order to enjoy it. Right. I feel that also works with Aliens. You don't need to see Alien to totally love Aliens. There's, you, don't, you don't need it. I mean, Alien is great, but you don't need to see it in order to understand and enjoy everything there is to have in, uh, in Aliens. And same goes for Terminator 2. Yeah. You, don't, you don't need to see that first movie. You could just be thrown in. Because basically they give you all that in like backstory. But in this you just have the constant action. And I really love it. I mean, I've told this story on the podcast before, but it has my favorite line from a director's commentary ever. Uh, there's the chase scene on the freeway at the end with the helicopter and it goes underneath the overpass. Yep. You, you know what I'm talking about, that scene? Yeah. Okay, well, there's that scene, and then Cameron is like, well, you see this scene here where we flew a helicopter under the overpass? The way we did that was we flew a helicopter under the overpass. <laughs> and it's just so matter-of-fact, like, yeah, I made people do that. It was crazy. Like, yeah, James Cameron is insane, and it's a shame that he's only making Avatar now. Yeah, he's taking his sweet time with the sequel, but knowing his track record for sequels, like you said, maybe... It's going to be pretty cin- good. It's, it's going to be good enough that, like, cinema is over. It's like, we don't have to make any more movies, okay? Yeah. It's and done. at that point, he will have made all the money, so there won't be any more money for movies to make. So exactly. it's done. Yep. Now, you saw a movie. I th- have you seen this once or twice? This movie, Terminator 2? No, the next movie we're going to be talking about. Oh, just once, yeah. Okay. But I'm probably going to see it like five more times. I would Uh, believe it. Uh, This is one of those movies uh, that is very high on my radar. Uh, It's also a movie 
that I have a question or two about. Okay. You saw Edgar Wright's new Baby Driver. Yep. Please tell me. Tell you what? All about it. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, this is essentially the movie we got when Edgar Wright walked away from Ant-Man because Marvel were being, you know, bitches about what he could and couldn't do. and They wanted product placement, and he was like, nah, I'm good. Yeah, product placement and, like, tying it into, like, a universe he had no control over. Yeah. But I feel like Baby Driver is so amazing, and I'm so happy this movie exists. It's In, like, a simple log line, this movie is about a young getaway driver who works with a band of criminals, and he tries to get out of this, uh, you know, criminal, like, world where, you know, people depend on him, but he also wants to kind of do his own sort of thing at the same time. And... It's as simple as like explaining it like that. This movie itself, the story... He, he falls seen, in love with Cinderella, right? He falls in love with Cinderella, played by Lily James. Yeah, Cinderella. And <laughs> he wants to like make a break with her, and I don't want to give away too much of the story, but I gotta say, there's a reason why Edgar Wright is so high on so many people's favorite director's list, and this is just a continuation of that trend, because, oh my god. it's He does so many things uh, in terms of paying tribute to crime and heist films of yesteryear as well as doing his own spin on things oh my um, god yes yeah so like this movie it takes a lot of uh, influence from stuff like heat and reservoir dogs and to live or die in la just to name a couple of movies um but then like you have the musical aspect and so this movie has been described by that's what i wanted to ask you like yeah this movie is kind of like uh it's got a comparison to like La La Land of like of Cars. I wouldn't kind of go that way. It is like <laughs> a jukebox musical for sure okay. in terms of how many different sort of genres and the ways in which they're placed in the scene. And there's so many sequences where songs are literally soundtrack to the editing. It's like every beat, there's like a gunshot for it. It's crazy. But I was just so, so blown away with this movie. And I loved it even more than I thought I was going to. Okay, what I was going to say is uh, this is one of those movies where I'm almost more excited for the soundtrack yeah. than I am for the actual movie because the soundtracks to Edgar Wright's movies have become all-time favorite albums right. for me. Like, they are still in constant rotation. Like, I still listen to the Shaun of the Dead soundtrack on a regular basis. It's just so much fun, and the songs he chooses are great. Yeah. Uh, the song, so the song selections in Baby Driver are also up to par. They're excellent. Well, this is a movie where Edgar Wright actually wrote this script with exact song choices in mind. And I think in the course of the whole film, there's like 60 different songs. So oh. if they ever do like a vinyl, it's going to be like on like eight discs or something. I don't know. But this I sounds say, terrific. I would say actually, because I don't think they're going to do like a whole listing. I'd say honestly, just go into the movie without knowing what songs are played. Because yeah. It's so much more fun that way. And he does a lot of really great choices um, in terms of like the whole way through. And mm-hmm. if you've been following the, him for a couple of years, and he used to run a website where he did like a weekly playlist, a lot of the songs he curated there are actually in the movie. So it's oh, he's awesome. loved him for like a while. That was just kind of really cool to see, even from the very first scene. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, this is uh, this comes out I think in June. Yep, June twenty eighth. Yeah, they moved it up because you know Christmas comes early this year. Totally. Yeah, and uh, it's one of those like I said, I'm like really looking forward to the soundtrack. It's one of those summer movies where like I'm gonna have the sound. I, like I, I know you hate this, but I'm gonna have the soundtrack before the movie comes out, and I will be listening to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking forward to this soundtrack and the soundtrack for Atomic Blonde. Yeah. Uh, because, oh boy, the music in that is going to be lots of fun. And exactly. uh, anytime you have New Order in your trailer and you have Health cover that song, it's a good day for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm very happy. Yeah. So, yeah, Baby Driver. I can't wait to see this thing 
opening night. It is, I think, easily a contender for the best film of the whole summer. It's one of the only original films coming out this summer, which is really sad. And I hope it actually finds its audience. I know it's coming out a couple days after the new Transformers, so I'm not expecting it to be like number one or anything. But oh, that's gonna gonna be going to the. I'm going to be going to the movies twice that week. Okay, cool. So, I don't know. Since, like, lots of Edgar Wright movies, they never really find their audience in theaters. It's more of, like, uh, people who already like him just kind of support them. Yeah. And then it's kind of, like, a bigger following, like, on home media and stuff. Yeah. I'm kind of hoping that doesn't happen this time. And the fact that, like, uh, TriStar actually moved it up from its late August release date shows that they're very confident in the film and that it's going to have a great word-of-mouth response, which I would yeah, love to see because this is a movie where it's got amazingly choreographed... Uh, chase sequences the acting is really great the music is great it's just across the whole spectrum just phenomenal so oh my god i can't wait you're making me very excited Hmm. plus i get to see kevin spacey be a bad guy so oh yeah i'm I'm always down for that yeah i'm always down for that that's gonna be fun all right all right listeners hey we're gonna take a little break uh we're gonna prep up our next segment and In the meantime, Marcelo, the editor this time, is going to play some lovely music for you. We're back. All right. Yeah, he'll he'll figure this out. This will be a fun homework assignment for him. Whoops. <laughs> Woof. Anyway, uh, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and whoever else is listening. Now, we're going to delve into talking about a man with really cool hair. Uh, we watched a lot of David Lynch this week, didn't we, Rob? We did. Yes, we did. And you watched, uh, starting off, one of my favorite romantic comedies. <laughs> what did you watch? <laughs> I watched David Lynch's very first feature film, which is Eraserhead. Yeah. You just cut it up like a regular chicken. <laughs> mm. yep. All right. Uh, I've talked about this show, about this movie on the show before. Uh, what's your take on Racerhead? What did you think of it? I, I've seen this movie a couple of times now, and I couldn't pass up the opportunity to see it again before the new episodes of Twin Peaks came out. Mostly the fact it was also on TCM Underground at 2 in the morning. And if there's, awesome. anything, if there's, if there's anything I know about this movie, it's, it's the best film to watch or it's the best time to watch this movie at 2 in the morning when you're either very drunk or very stoned because yes. the whole sort of sensation and the feeling is so much more enlivened in that kind of state. Not kind of advocating for uh, you know substance abuse or anything. I'm just saying this is one of those movies where it's actually so much more alive in that sensibility. Oh, most definitely. Uh, I've watched this drunk a few times. And I can still get something out of it. I think that's the wonder of David Lynch. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think this is actually my favorite David Lynch movie because... Oh, wow. Nice. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's probably my third favorite. One. It's, up, it's up there. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely his purest sense of style, especially when you uh, look at the various short films he completed before going on to making this. His whole sort of background in um, artwork and how he wanted to sort of take that same kind of... Uh, you know, mentality, but apply it to another medium. And this is a movie where it's a lot of things. I think no two people are going to get the same experience based on their own sort of subjectivities. Uh, Almost definitely. It's, uh, you know, mainly it's about the anxieties of uh, adulthood, wrapped being a father, surrealistic kind of aspect, and it's got you know really really unsettling imagery and tone. 
uh, from the very beginning, and it's just it's as singular, I think, as first time features go in yeah. terms of just how much Lynch did, you know, behind the camera, not just directing and writing it, but all the work he did in terms of you know creating the visual effects and the sound design. Over the Lord knows how many years they took filming this. I think it took like eight years to finish. Yeah, yeah. Something ridiculous like that. Like he started it when he went to film school and then he like finished it after. Yeah, uh, him and uh, actually I remember watching the documentary Eraserhead Stories and most of the story is, most of the movie is him on the phone with Catherine Coulson. Uh, talking about how you know she provide she was a waitress at the time so she would like take sandwiches from work and bring them and that would be the craft services <laughs> uh, it was pretty cool like uh, Lynch would be like could you please bring some grilled cheese today <laughs> she'd, she'd be like sure thing David I, I can do that and she worked on you know the set design for this movie uh, this was a group collaborative effort and I love that he kept working with her throughout the years uh, in various roles uh, obviously in in Twin Peaks as the log lady, but we'll get to her a little later. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love this thing. I love how you could watch it as numerous types of movies. You could just watch it as a straight-up horror movie if you wanted, and yep. you could get what you need from that. You could watch it as an absurdist comedy, and you could get it get what you need from that. I mean, like I said before, you know, you just cut them up like regular chickens. I think that's one of the funniest lines I've ever heard. It's just so wacky and out there that they have the, these little little chickens and you know you just cut them up like regular chickens and then they bleed everywhere because why wouldn't they uh but yeah no i love this thing i remember years ago one of the first times i saw it i watched it on my own and then me and my buddy were out drinking on saint patrick's day and uh, we didn't have anything to do after the bars closed i was like hey let's go back to my house i'll show you this crazy movie and he's like okay sure uh so yeah johnny sat there for the hour and a half that it was on with his jaw just dropped he did not know what to make of this thing and uh we still talk about it to this day he's watched it a few times since then and yeah it's a trip and it's one that sticks with you uh for a long time and it's all the better for it yeah over the last 40 or so years it's kind of carved itself into being among like the defining films of cult cinema and like midnight movies where it really got its reputation from and i feel like even today it's still just as you know fucked up as it was back then even though i wasn't alive when it came out but still you know i mean it it is the definitive midnight movie uh i don't don't know about that but it's definitely up there it's it's up there but i mean what what else would you consider like a midnight movie uh el topo uh pink flamingos night of the living dead oh god pink pink flamingos jesus yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good movie too. I like that one too. <laughs> that's <laughs> a lot, but like for that whole sort of like like seventies uh, period, I guess when that kind of really came into its own. You know, this is one of the films that really kind of spoke to a lot of, you know, very disillusioned youth in that sort of sensibility. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, moving forward in the timeline, uh, you watched Fire Walk with me. Yep. Uh, was this your first time seeing it or no? This is my first time, and it's oh, all wow. just because okay, of the whole cool. uh, Twin Peaks sort of rewatch and everything. So. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, what'd you think of it? Because I personally love it. I think it's, uh, I think it's one of his best exercises behind the camera. Just the way he's able to link uh, the Twin Peaks show to something that you know fans of the show probably wouldn't like, right? But also, if you're deep into the lore of Twin Peaks, it's essential. Yeah. Uh, what'd you think? I. Uh 
this is gonna, you know, maybe anger a lot of people, but I didn't like it very much at all. I thought it was maybe oh, no. my least favorite Lynch that I've seen to date. But I feel Dune? like... Dune? Really? It's worse than Dune. D- Dune's pretty good, man. I don't know about that. Well... I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, what I have to say about Firewalk With Me is that this movie, uh, it's... It's a film where it's sort of like an extended sort of Twin Peaks. It's basically like what David Lynch didn't get a chance to do in terms of there not being a third season of the show after it was abruptly canceled. Um, And I can imagine why people seeing this when it came out in 1992 were so pissed off. Oh, they would have been furious. Exactly, because this movie, it's kind of like an odds and ends sort of thing. It gives you like the backstory to uh, Laura Palmer's last seven days, which we never really got to see fully on the show. And it tries to be a bit of like a prequel as well for like uh, you know Agent Dale Cooper. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting because the whole first part of the film with Chris Chris Isaac and uh, Kiefer Sutherland investigating uh, Teresa Banks that was supposed to be uh, Agent Dale Cooper, but Kyle MacLachlan oh. didn't want to work on the movie for very long because he felt well, like the show tainted his sort of. Uh, you know, sensibility as an actor and kind of typecast. So he only worked five days on the movie. That's why he's only in like two or three scenes. Uh, kind of that it's depending on who you listen to. Right. I guess, uh, at the time he was dating Lara Flynn Boyle. Right. And she had a falling out with David Lynch. Okay. So it was basically like, I don't want you in his movie. So he had to like reduce his role to a basic cameo. Yeah, well, I know like the so, whole I know the relationship between the two of them is why he never uh, was able to have his relationship with um, Sherilyn Fenn on the show, you know, yes. get much further than it did. Uh, so yeah. she kind of stood in the way of that as well. But yeah, yeah. but hey, Lara Flynn Boyle is fine, I guess. Yeah, uh, I will say I prefer New Donna. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? Um, uh, the new Donna in the sh- in the movie is uh, pretty great, and I also would say that it is crazy that after this, that Cheryl Lee did not have a great career. I mean, she's awesome in this movie. Uh, the things that Lynch had her do, it's it's like next level. Just the the character work and just the raw emotion that she has in this in this role as Laura Palmer in the entire thing. It's crazy that. Uh, that you know, first off, that she went for it, and that she pulled it off. I mean, she's great. Uh, I mean, she didn't really do much after this, which is a shame. I mean, she had a role in John Carpenter's Vampires, which she's fine in that, I guess. I mean, it's not really her fault; it's kind of the movie's fault. But yeah, it's she's one of the like, the tragedies of '90s actresses, where like you know, she didn't really get that push that she needed uh, for one reason or another, right? But yeah, no, I really like this. Uh, you don't. It's fine. It's. Uh, I, I feel like it's just fine. the whole aspect of like uh, making like a, almost a whole movie about the Laura Palmer character, who on the Twin Peaks series is essentially like a MacGuffin, you know, yeah. in terms of how she's placed in the role. But now we actually get you know a look into her actual you know final sort of you know period and interacting with all these other characters and stuff and. You know, it's such a, you know, really bleak movie. Obviously, you know, they're able to say and do things they couldn't do on the ABC network. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there's a lot more F-bombs and less, very, very grisly uh, scene of violent escapades. But at the same time, it's just like, 
it may, may have also just been like going through the whole Twin Peaks series and seeing this as the culmination and, you know, not really being so prepared for it because this yeah. is like a really hard movie to watch. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yes. It's uh, it's not for the faint of heart. It's very gruesome. And isn't Leland Palmer a charmer? Oh. Uh. <laughs> wash your hands, Laura. <laughs> uh. Wash your hands, Laura. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's that whole scene. Uh, I was watching it with a friend of mine. She had never seen it before. Uh, she really liked it, but that scene just like set her off. Like she couldn't even look at the screen when he was screaming, "Wash your hands!" Yeah, right. Well, I think that's the other thing. I once saw this movie at a theater in Toronto. That was having oh, like okay. a special sort of Twin Peaks party, I guess. So, like they had like a uh, sort of. Um, it's quite the party movie. Well, that's the thing. It had, had like a fake, like you know, uh, red room sort of setup, and they had people in costumes. Okay. They're giving out like coffee and donuts. But you get to the movie itself, and it's like not a sort of fun sort of get together kind of no. thing. There's no people like you know shouting lines at the screen. Um, you know, people aren't like tossing stuff around or whatever. It's like you kind of just walk out of that movie feeling like total shit. You know. Yep. And uh, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, I mean, I I have actually have a feeling that you'll enjoy this more if you rewatch it after the new season. Right. Well, that's, that's the other thing about uh, the movie itself. It's that it's basically Lynch doing what he wanted to do outside the confines of like what television was in the like early '90s, and yeah. him like kind of you know continuing this whole transgressive style that he had within Blue Velvet, and then he you know raised with uh, Wild at Heart, and this Oof. is sort of like the upward trajectory of that, I guess. Yeah, I uh yeah, yeah. It's uh it's going to be really nice to watch this after the new season. Uh speaking of something that's kind of connected to the new season, Mulholland Drive. I watched this uh over the past month I've been doing a David Lynch marathon where I watch everything he's done. Mm-hmm. And this is the second time I've done a Lynch marathon and it's oh so good. Uh this is still my favorite uh David Lynch film. I just love the look of it. I love the mystique. I love that every time I watch it, I think I have it figured out, and then 20 minutes later, no, I don't, because I thought too much, and then everything goes to shit. But hey, um, after watching the entirety of Twin Peaks, you know, I was talking to a writer for Talk Film Society, Andrew Isla, and uh, we both have this thought where everything is connected to the Black Lodge, uh, every bit of, like, sinister... Anything that's sinister in Lynch's universe is just connected to the Black Lodge. It could all be explained using that. Uh, not as like a full explanation, but kind of like as a guide mm-hmm. to to what happened. I mean, that's where you would get, you know, the Winkies monster. Uh, that's where you would get the uh, the old people, obviously. But yeah, I love this movie. It was um, I saw it for the first time years and years ago, uh, actually after... Uh, I had known who Naomi Watts was. Uh, she had been in a few movies. Uh, she was in King Kong. And then I was like, let me check this out, because uh, I was going on a Lynch kick back in high school. Um, no, this is college. Wow. Okay. That's cool. I know time very well. Uh, so I checked this one out on a uh, the DVD that originally came out, and I loved it back then. And I still love it now. I watched The Criterion. It's a very nice release. I love the interviews that are on the disc. Um this movie's just great. Uh, it's one of the best films of the 2000s. And I don't think Lynch has topped this. Uh, we'll, have, we'll have to see. We'll have to wait and see until, you know, the end of the season in September, if he has. But I have a feeling he might. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting because 
Mulholland Drive was originally conceived to be another TV series. Yes. And it was actually going to follow um, Audrey Horn's character as she goes to Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. But uh, he kind of retooled things, and the network didn't end up picking it up, but he decided, I'm going to take you know this you know pilot and fashion it into a feature film, and then... You know, it actually ended up being like a huge sort of you know hit amongst like critics, and you know again became a huge like cult thing. He got nominated for an Oscar for this, right, for best director. Yes, um, he was up against, I believe, that year. Um, uh, Soderbergh won. Yes, well, actually, no, Soderbergh was, uh, won. It Soderbergh a, won for Traffic. Wait, yeah. the, I think it was the year after that. I think Ron Howard won for A Beautiful Mind. Oh, okay. Yeah. This was okay. No, yes, this was two thousand one Oscars where. Okay. Yeah. Yes. But it was also that was yeah. He's in the same field as like Robert Altman for um, Gosford Park, and yes, I think after this part, you see Ron Howard. He gets up to accept his Oscar and the second Oscar because they're running out of time for Best Picture, and you see like yeah. Lynch and like Altman looking at each other, being like, "Whatever," you know. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I remember that was the year that uh, yeah, Lynch was nominated, Altman was nominated, uh, Ridley Scott was nominated uh, for Black Hawk Down. It was basically. Uh, that was basically like a makeup nomination for Ridley Scott, where they're like, "We didn't give it to you for Gladiator last year. Maybe you'll win it this year." Yeah. That sort of thing. And also, he was in the same boat as Lynch, where they were nominated for Best Director, but their films were not up for Best Picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, you know what, Lynch doesn't need an Oscar. No, he doesn't. I mean, I mean, it's an honor I to mean, actually get nominated for this movie in particular. Yes, like, that's yeah. really the statement I think in itself. Yeah. And either way, Robert Altman should have won that year. So yeah. that's my opinion. Okay. Hey, I love Gosford Park. It's my favorite Robert Altman. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I also watched, uh, actually, for a, an article on the site, uh, Inland Empire, uh, his 2006 uh, film. And this was only the second time I've seen it. But this really is key to understanding uh, anything he does as a director. Uh, it has everything that a Lynch movie could have and should have. It has uh, great visuals uh, that a lot of people find off-putting, you know, because he shot it on video. He basically shot this on a little Sony camcorder, which, you know, uh, this is the movie that made him break away from using film because he could just film for as long as he wanted and just get the shots and the performances that he needed uh, from Laura Dern in this. Uh, she gives one of the best performances of all time, I think in Inland Empire. Uh, she is just... She runs through every set of emotions that a, a human being could have. She plays two characters, maybe three, in some portions of the film. Uh, yeah, she is... This is an all-timer from Laura Dern. Uh, always been one of my favorite actresses, and to have her be the showcase of Inland Empire is a real treat for fans of her. Um a lot of like I said before, a lot of people hate it, but I love his switch to video with this. I think it works uh, for the story that he was telling. Uh, this movie is a labyrinth. Uh, you're not going to pick up on everything the first time you see it. I know I didn't the first time I see it, but the second time I was picking up on a lot more. I noticed how uh, the rabbits are essentially a Greek chorus to what is going on throughout the film, and I really appreciated that going on. Uh, yeah, I love Inland Empire. I think it's really good. Uh, and I know a lot of people that hate it. Uh, what do you think of it? I haven't seen it. Oh, no! <laughs> yeah, it's so on the to-see list. But I'm definitely checking it out as soon as possible because I feel like with uh, the new Twin Peaks series, this is another example of Lynch being like, I'm not shooting on film. Digital is the way to go. So yep. I feel like you know, this is uh, Inland Empire has basically been described as sort of being the closing chapter of him making narrative 
filmmaking. Yes. Because he, you know, the whole idea is not on digital. It's not on film itself. It's uh, him basically saying, you know, this is uh, my sort of final artistic statement within that mode. And I know there's been a lot of people have told me a lot about the movie and how hyped up it is and everything. And, like, I just got to sit down and find three hours of spare time just to, you know, engulf myself in this. But, yeah, you know. I mean, it is three hours, but it flies by. Uh, I don't know how it does, but you don't really notice the time time going. I mean, I started this, and then I, I, you know, a little bit later, you know, I checked the time. I was like, oh, this is this isn't this isn't going that bad. And already two two hours had passed. I'm like, oh wow, okay, this movie really grabs you. And Lynch is good at doing that. Uh, he grabs you from the start and doesn't let go, but he also doesn't hold your hand which I appreciate a lot from this guy. He lets you draw your own conclusions. They're probably not the right conclusions, but you can draw your own, and that's fine. Right. Well, a lot of his films, they're like all uh, based around this whole aspect of mystery and, you know, yes. going down like the proverbial rabbit hole and seeing how, you know, twisted or how things are going to change, even if they're not linear in terms of construction or, you know, even in semblance of making any goddamn sense. So yeah, I feel like, you know, this based on the way you describe the movie, this is like a perfect like evocation of that. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I think you'll dig this one. Actually, I think you'll dig it quite a bit. Okay. So hey, yes, that actually brings us to the end of episode seventy-one. Are you sad? I'm sad. I'm sad. I, I am sad because I had a blast. This episode was a lot of fun so far. And. It's over. So, hey, at, I, what does Marcelo always say? Oh, that's it. Yes, plugs. Where can the fine people find you online, Rob Trench? So you can find me online on Twitter, at Rob Trench, where I'm posting things I'm writing online, as well as really, and, really bad tweets. And Pikachu memes. Not anymore. Don't ask me any <laughs> questions about Pikachu. <laughs> All right. Uh, as for me, you, as usual, you can find me on the Twitters at the Real Matt C. You can also find me on Letterboxd under the same name to see if I'm lying about what movies I'm watching. And you can find me over at Talk Film Society, where I'm the editor at large. I've put on a lot of weight recently, and you know, putting together a lot of good content for everyone. And uh, yes, and hey, you're also the managing editor. So there you go. Yep. So there you go. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey, What You Watching? And now it's time for our signature catchphrase. Come up with one real quick. Uh, I gotta go. Sorry. <laughs> Woozle wuzzle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that's, <laughs> that's the show. <laughs> Thank you.
Hello! Welcome to the special Twin Peaks segment of the show. Uh, Marcel and I had this thing planned where we were going to discuss every week's uh, new Twin Peaks episode uh, from the new series that's on Showtime. It's back, ladies and gentlemen. And he is sick this week. So in his place is his doppelganger, Rob Trench. How are you, Rob? I'm pretty good. <laughs> One would hope. Uh, are you safely out of the lodge yet? I can only hope. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't, I don't, right, I don't think Jackpot. I'm like the evil uh, doppelganger or whatever. I mean, I guess I can be a little... Oh, no, your, hair is, your hair is short, so yeah. you're fine. Okay, that's great. All right, Mr. Jackpots, let's do this. So, Twin Peaks came back. Uh, I believe everyone had their own little, you know, get-togethers, or, you know, everyone at least watched it when it premiered. Um, I will start off by saying that these first two episodes are everything I wanted and more. Uh, it This is, the, the it's the one time that marketing did not lie. Uh, the Showtime executives described this as uh, pure, unfiltered David Lynch. And that this is exactly what we got. And I also think I, I would say that what we got was not the Twin Peaks that Twin Peaks fans expected, but instead we got the Twin Peaks that David Lynch fans expected. Uh, this is all very surreal. This is all very um, pretty off the wall at times. And it doesn't go exactly where you'd expect. I mean, there are very few scenes in these first two episodes that actually take place in the titular town of Twin Peaks. Uh, there's a lot of uh, cross-country hopping happening, and uh, it really works to the show's... Uh, to the show's... Uh, I, what's the word? Uh, the positive reaction I've had to the show. How about that? Yeah, that- the show's favor. Yeah, in the show's favorite. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, the, these first two episodes, they go all over the country, and they all connect uh, in one way or the other. Um, what did you think of... Let's, let's start with the first scene. What did you think of the return of the giant, now he's known as Question Marks? Well, it's interesting seeing how the show starts off in this very um, you know black and white you know milieu. Uh, still within the Black Lodge, I'm assuming. And it has this kind of very eraser head uh, sort of aspect of it. Yes, I feel it like looks very eraser head. I feel like that's very intentional in terms of like Lynch. And I honestly want to think that with the whole Twin Peaks, uh, you know, revival, reboot, season three, whatever you want to call it, I feel like he's going to be leaving little sort of like, you know, nods and references to his other works throughout yeah. the whole show. Like I don't want to give away spoilers in terms of like things that people have said to me about the show because it's all oh, very, hey, like uh, under the wraps and hush hush. But it seems okay. to me like he's doing a project that's essentially going to be like a best of David Lynch. It's not yeah, going was, to be Twin Peaks. Yeah, uh, I was saying this the other day. This is going to be like a greatest hits package. Yeah, and we're getting that from like the very start. And this isn't like your dad's like you know Twin Peaks in the nineties. It's uh, <laughs> some people have said this is like Twin Peaks in name only. And like you said, this. Uh, you know, these episodes, they don't have that much to do with the original characters and locations. It's very much uh, Lynch trying to expand beyond, I guess, you know, what we kind of figure for the show in terms of taking these huge leaps and bounds in its evolution. It's very much informed by the period that Lynch went through after the show ended in the 90s, and he went on to make films like Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire. Uh, 
And those three films, I think, are the key to understanding this new series. Yes. For sure. Uh, I will say that when they did go to Twin Peaks, uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of happy moments for me. Uh, I loved seeing Hawk. Yeah. Again, I loved loved seeing uh, you know Deputy Chief Hawk, and what I really loved was getting to see Catherine Coulson reprise her role one last time as uh, the Log Lady Margaret. Um, that's a scene that had me. I cried during that scene because it was just so beautiful and true. Uh, to Lynch as a director and her as a performer. I mean, anyone else, uh, when she was in that state, I mean, she was battling cancer at the time. This is right before, uh, right before she passed away. Anyone else would have just tried to cover that up. They would have had her, she would have put a wig on, you know, uh, to just cover up what she was really going through. But no, they, they kept her, they kept her dignity intact uh, by just showing you how she truly was uh, at the end of her life. And there's, you know, there's no gussying that up. I mean, she was going to pass away. And I love David Lynch for not covering that up in any way. I, I love that they had her back one last time to basically set Hawk in motion to try and find uh, Agent Cooper again. And I love that they hint that, you know, they have a long friendship, uh, Margaret and Hawk, that, you know, hey, he stops by every once in a while. And, you know, they have uh, they have their coffee and um, and cherry pie together. I, I think that was it was really sweet moment uh, for the series to actually like once you get back into Twin Peaks, that that's one of the first things you see other than Dr. Jacoby getting some shovels. <laughs> Yeah, because you know, hey, if anyone's going to be spray painting shovels, it's going to be Doctor Jacoby. Because why wouldn't he? Right. And it's but a, yeah, the, yeah. The, the log lady thing is it was it was probably my favorite moment of that of that episode. I it really it really touched me. It's also just a great testament to David Lynch and his longstanding like you know relationship with Catherine Coulson that goes yes, most to the very very beginning of their respective careers and. It was very bittersweet just to have that, you know, one sort of last time seeing her within the uh, universe of the TV series. Yeah, it was just, it was sweet to just see her, you know, holding her log, talking to Hawk on her phone. Like, I really love that. Yeah. I mean, like, you're right. They could have, like, you know, recast it with, like, a different actor, but it just wouldn't feel the same. And no, it would, that would have been, that would have been cheap. And yeah. I, and David Lynch doesn't cheap out on uh, his friends, basically. Yeah. Which is why I think it's interesting that um, we also have the addition of uh, Robert Forster, who we first thought was actually going to be replacing Michael Unkeen as Sheriff Truman, but he's actually playing Sheriff Truman's brother. Yes, as, because uh, Michael Unkeen's Sheriff Truman is sick. Yep. <laughs> and can't make it to the office. That's why we're going with it, because he just doesn't want to leave Hawaii for anything. But Which is fine. Happened, honestly. <laughs> Um, one thing I really like about the show is that we don't have the opening credits listing the actors. In fact, you're not going to know who's in the show. Exactly. Unless you watch the whole thing, which leaves the whole you know door open for surprises the entire way through. Yeah, it's a really it's every time someone pops up, it's a nice surprise. I mean, uh, Matthew Lillard shows up in this episode, and I had no I I didn't even remember seeing him on the cast list. Like just and to see him pop up and do such a good job as basically this guy who was did he murder someone? This is a this is a very Laura Palmer esque murder that's taking place in what's it called Buckskin, North South Dakota. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, basically, he's been accused of murdering uh, the librarian and and switching the head with another body, and it's all very crazy. And it gets into kind of the soap opera stuff that the original Twin Peaks got into with, you know, the, the wife is having an affair and this and that. But Lillard is great in this. Um, his scenes actually reminded me a lot of Lost Highway uh, taking place in the prison and stuff and seeing the other spirit in a pr- in the prison. I don't know what that guy was. That was, was that was very um, guy behind Winkies in terms of just how it just kind of pans yes. over. Yes. like, what is Very that? guy behind... Yes. I was like, oh, hey, it's a hobo, but no, it's not. What's happening? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I loved that. I loved uh, Matthew Lillard in this. I loved that the detective is played by the one of the bad guys from Blue Velvet. Right. Which was pretty cool. When he popped up, I was like, oh, shit, it's him. He's the guy with the brain hanging out. Uh, not in Twin Peaks and in the other thing. He right. has a brain hanging out. But yeah, no, and I love the... I love Dirtbag Coop. <laughs> I think he is just so terrific uh, playing this sleazy... Basically, I guess he's over the... Over the years, being possessed by Bob, he's turned into a hitman. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just love him in this. Uh, I love that uh, that weird cabin that he goes into, and I I did laugh my ass off when uh, that guy get, just kept trying to like get him out of there. He comes up to him with the shotgun, he just kind of like slaps him, and the, the shotgun hits him in the mouth. I'm like, ah, oh, that's pretty good. Uh, and I love the connections that almost every scene has in this to another thing. I mean, you see them sitting in the diner, uh, Dirtbag Coop and his cohorts, and he's sitting there eating cream corn, which no one orders that, except in a David Lynch movie. Right. Uh, which, which, yeah, I just, I just love, like I said before, this is everything I could have wanted and more. Yeah, I think it was very smart of Showtime to have, you know, two episodes back to back, as well as the additional two for streaming people for people who are like really diehard Twin Peaks fans, because you know this eighteen episode run, they're leaving the first episodes, the first two episodes leave all these various seeds to be planted, and at yes. this point we're not really sure what this whole thing means, like in the grander scheme of things. So I feel like if they had just you know, for example, only aired the first episode, a lot of people would feel like they just got really, really, really trolled or something because they're just like, yes. no sense. I mean, what the, is this? I mean, the whole like 15-minute scene of like the box and the cameras and that guy just Love watching it. it, it's like... And eventually as you watch on, that stuff builds into something else and you get yes, it. Yes, exactly. But as itself, it's so stark, you know, and, you know... Yeah, I loved that whole sequence. I just wanted to know where it was going and then the, and the fact that it ended with... Uh, I don't know, a grown-up, mutated Eraserhead baby? Yeah. Simply amazing. Like, I loved that whole sequence of the murder uh, in New York. Um, yeah, and then, you know, the episode ends uh, with uh, Matthew Lillard in jail, and then the next episode begins uh, mm. with him still in jail, uh, but then we get to go back to the Red Room, where... Uh, what's his name? Mike? Is it Mike? Yep. I always forget his name. The guy with the one arm. Uh, and then we get to see the evolved version of the arm, uh, originally played by Michael Anderson, who's not back because he's crazy. <laughs> uh, and he has been transformed and evolved into, I guess it's it's a tree with a brain on top. It kind of looks like the tree that uh, the character in Eraserhead had on his nightstand. Yep. Except now it has a brain on top because... Of course it does. 
Yeah. But yeah, th- this part was really cool. I loved uh, everything inside inside that lodge. Um, I, I, I isn't this the scene? Isn't doesn't or is this? No, wait. This is this the episode where Leland comes back for like a scene, right? Right. Yes, and he's like, "You need to find Laura," and that whole sequence is crazy, where Laura takes her own face off. Yep. Yeah, that that was really cool. Um, I just love everything inside the red room. I, I just love the sound design. I love how it's very surreal and doesn't. It's not lock and step with what it would sound like in real life. But you're not in real life. No, you're in the Black Lodge. Uh, so everything is heightened and um, has those those weird like foley effects that really work to sell it. Um, what do you think of this episode? Well. You think of the original Twin Peaks series and the last hour that it ends on as, like, Coop goes into uh, the Black Lodge, and it's just the most, you know, insane, bonkers kind of way to do a season finale for a show. And it's nice that we actually get, like, a proper return to that mode of the show's storytelling. And, yeah. you know, we resume where he was beforehand and everything. Um, just because it feels... I guess it kind of gave closure to those people who had waited 25 years, you know, just to kind of learn more about that place. Yeah, what happened there? I mean, I mean, I, and there's, you know, theories are abound about what's going on with, you know, Dirtbag Coop. I mean, during uh, one of the scenes, uh, he calls uh, Philip Jeffries, David Bowie's character, on the phone and speaks to him. Uh, is Philip Jeffries in the series? No one knows. Um, but I do have theories about that monster... That was in the uh, the cube. Um, one of my theories is that it could be Philip Jeffries, who has transformed over so many years, uh, being infected by this uh, whatever's in the Black Lodge. That could eat. That could be him. Uh, it could be something. It could be nothing. But that's a pretty nifty thing to think about. What could that be? Um, I also uh, really like how somehow. Dirtbag Coop is going to try to escape the Black Lodge because the Black Lodge wants him back. It wants Bob back. So I guess maybe it's overstated its welcome inside Cooper's body and maybe it needs another host. But I love the fact that he's going to try to escape the pull of this uh, this netherworld that you're not supposed to be able to escape. It's basically trying to escape purgatory. You just don't do it. Uh, but apparently this this Cooper doppelganger has a plan, and we're going to see that work out over the next few episodes. Um, uh, what do you think of uh, that whole thing with uh, him trying to escape? I thought it was really... Well, that's the whole sort of thing. Everything that happens within the Black Lodge, within the Red Room... Yeah. It defies, you know, logic. It defies anything you can think of. And that's why it's the show at its most pure Lynchian. It's why, yes. you know, the only real episodes of the original run with those sequences intact were the ones that Lynch directed. So yeah. it's it being so it's so great to see be able to see Lynch uh, you know, back in that mode and really like amplifying the sense of um uneasiness and tension that goes along with it. And then the episode ends with uh, uh, James making a return, you know, to the Bang Bang Bar as he walks in. Uh, apparently, he's done some time, uh, according to Shelley, played by uh, Magic and she looks terrific. Oh yeah, uh, which I mean, 
viewers of uh, Riverdale would know that obviously because you know she plays Betty's mother on that, and she uh, she's just amazing on that show. And I have a feeling she's going to have some really great character moments on this one as well. Uh, that little glance that she shares with James at the very end of the episode as the chromatics play uh, is terrific. And let's talk about that music, too. Uh, I had said this in our Slack chat, but I just love the fact that every episode is going to give me a a different band to check out because it seems that at the end of every episode, a new band is going to be playing the the Bang Bang Bar. And who knew that Twin Peaks was a uh, tour destination for all these different bands? I kind of love that. I love that little conceit that... uh, Basically, these are bands that, you know, Lynch enjoys, obviously. And he's like, you know what? Uh, Be in my show. And I think that's also going to be really good for, like, bands that people haven't heard before. People are going to watch them and they'll be like, oh, let me look them up. Maybe I'll like them. And then, you know, hey, they they get new fans. I think that's a really good thing that he's doing for music as well. Uh, Which, I mean, if anyone who's followed uh, Lynch's career is going to know that he has an affinity for music. I mean, in the meantime, before making Twin Peaks, he put out two albums uh, where he, uh, you know, basically sang and, you know, did the instruments and stuff. So, you know, he has his ear to the ground uh, when it comes to music. So I'm glad that he's choosing, he's cherry-picking these bands and they can, uh, their songs can describe and like get like a sense for what the episode that just happened was all about. Right. Uh, really, really love that. Yeah, it makes for a nice kind of like decompression to the actual events of the show in terms of like every episode is going to have that same sort of conclusion where we're going to wind up right back at the Bang Bang Bar with these I like bands who are just like, hey, let's just stop in this little small town, you know, and play a show, and it's always yeah. crowded. All right. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty... Yeah, they have a they have a rockin' Saturday night crowd at uh, the Bang Bang Bar with Jacques still bartending somehow. <laughs> it's probably like another Jacques. I don't know. I, I would hope so, because uh, that guy's dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the show, not in real life. He's a, he's a jolly man. In, in 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 the in real life, but yeah, that was um, that was our little Twin Peaks discussion, little bonus episode for everyone. We're probably gonna either tack it on to the end of the episode, or maybe we'll just release these separately. Uh, in the meantime, we will come up with a title. Uh, I'm thinking uh, Mr. Jackpots, something like that. that. That might be lots of fun. But we'll get to that little discussion next week uh, when Marcelo is healthy and back with us. Um, until next time. Uh, that was a damn fine cup of conversation. Uh, Rob? Yep. Make a catchphrase. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Good talk.